Cole Shack's Loop Podcast, special edition, interview with Richard Haddam. And yet he's the kid who's like, well, the grown-ups don't believe me. And, and so I'm going to have to handle this on my own. Hello, everybody. This is Robert. Tonight we have a special midnight interview. It is the writer of the Mothman Prophecies. He's been a producer and writer for The Dead Zone, one of my personal favorites, Supernatural, Grim, Miracles, among many others. And his most recent endeavor, DC's Titans, Season 3, airs later this fall. Welcome to The Loop, Richard Haddam. Thank you so much, guys. I feel like I should um, I should be smoking a cigarette, you know? That, that was a the, sexy interview? Yeah, I mean, a like, sexy well, intro? Well, the, the, you know, the, the midnight podcast, you know, with, you know, downtown L.A. I have a cigarette, you know, I've never smoked, but I always I, I, I was never cool enough. I always wished to smoke, but I, I just I couldn't pull it off. But you're like super punk, right? I'm so punk. See, you guys, listeners at home missed the first half hour of conversation where all the real all the real good juicy stuff came out about me being a punk in high school with Neil Botulier. And uh, and all the all the punk clubs and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and suburbia, but the, yeah, who knows? We we may circle back. We don't know. Yeah, we, this is the loop. We tend to circle back in the loop. Right? There you go. I, I I would love to hear anything about the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I miss them every single time they came to Louisville. We have a little punk club here that was called uh, Tooligans, and then it got its license changed, so they then had to name it backwards, and it was called Snagglewitz. And I believe the Chili Peppers played at both of them, and I was never in town. Always at a track meet every time they were there. Bradley, i tell you what, because it is so sexy, can you find that midnight interview bumper that we have? I'm talking about Let's this play bumper, that, because right? I, I think Richard needs to hear that. After my enlightening conversation with the beautiful Helen Surtees, I ran a check through tax records and business licenses. The Max Match dating service was almost brand spanking new. No one knew where it came from or what other branches it had. It seemed to me that such mysterious origins warranted what we in the press call the midnight interview. You guys, that, that is the greatest honor of my life. You would use an audio clip from Darren McGavin from the Youth Killer episode, the 19th out of 20 episodes. That is just wonderful. Thank, I, I'm, I am truly honored. I didn't even think we'd get that response, but yes, look at it. Ah. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm just I'm holding up uh, I'm holding up pictures that I bought back <laughs> these these sort of backstage photographs from the TV show The Night Stalker. So if you're if you're watching on YouTube, you can see these. I, I got them on eBay. They're obviously not originals, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know if they're still available out there. Oh, yeah, anyway. Nobody cares. They're original. They're cool. Is is, oh, is he, so cool. is him being in that trash can foreshadowing? that they're ready to wrap the show and go on to something else. This was like his last fight with Dan Curtis and uh, he's going into the trash. Is that what it is? Well, you know, you could read it that way. I mean, you guys have talked to Dewitziak, so, you know, (laughs) you know, everything, but uh, uh, I I think they were just goofing around, but you never know. I'll show you, you know, I'll give you another one. He, again, he and his wife, this is just them at a story conference. Look at this. That's I mean, intense. what a great picture of McCavin. You know? Yeah. Now, I, I just heard on one of the sites, and I don't know if you participate either in Alias or as yourself in any of these Facebook Coal Shack sites. 
And, you know, there, there are two sites, one that has 18,000 members, another that has 15,000 members. And I think one more, oh, they're, they're huge. And, and so the reason why we have switched our order, so to speak, for the way that we're covering the shows and jumped ahead to the, the night, the, uh, the Ripper is because the me TV schedule. So me TV airs the night stalker on Saturday nights at midnight and these Facebook watch party and with these Facebook groups have watch parties. And then, and all that it is, is them commenting on their Facebook. That's not really on Twitter or any kind of special function that they do, but somebody gets on there and he says the whistling starts at 12 and then everybody sort of jumps in. <laughs> And they all make their references. And in some cases, they make kind of like little jokes. But in other cases, and everybody's throwing out trivia about how much they love this, that, and the other. And uh, it's it's really fun. So when we saw that, I asked, I think his name is Simon Bart Ball or Bert Ball, something like that, if we could just join in and advertise our Shack's loop, so to speak, around the time they do that. And he said yes. And so we've we've jumped in. And that really helped. Don't you think, Bradley, we got maybe... I mean, for the the Ripper, we jumped pretty fast up into the 60s. Now, you know, we're not a huge podcast, obviously. We don't have thousands of people. We're expecting you to give that to us, though, Rich. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to deliver. Yeah, I think, you know, (laughs) hey, look, Astonishing Legends, they've got millions of downloads. I have to think it's amazing. Oh, and it it wasn't big until Rich came around. I mean, I listened to him before that, but I mean, I I really didn't. (laughs) I mean, you know, you you know, it it, it suddenly took on a, a special luster. Yeah. That's great. I should check that out. That's really fun. The whistling starts at midnight. God, that's so good. You know, Robert, though, something I realized, I think, I think me TV and I was looking into this, I think they cut the episodes like they sort of cut them up a little bit because they fit them in an hour. And if you look in it, they're about 55 minutes up. It was an episode without commercials, 55 minutes. But no, 48. No, yeah. 48. Yeah. You always lose that 12 minutes. Yeah, there was uh, in the 70s, a typical TV show uh, was 48 minutes. I know because I've got DVDs, obviously, for Colstrack, but also Rockford and stuff like that. So a a, a one hour TV show was 48 minutes of filmed entertainment. And then that that began to erode through the 80s and then into the 90s and the 2000s as more commercials were added. And now I can tell you that if you're writing a one hour episode of television, that episode is going to come out to about just over 41 minutes yeah. of filmed entertainment. And the other uh, 18 and a half minutes <clears throat> are uh, commercials and, um, you know, yeah. local advertising. Yeah. I just saw somebody in the group mention that. So I didn't know if it was, if it, because I don't, I don't know if they cut six minutes or if they air them the way, but it seems like there, there might be cut a little bit. Um, mm. But Rich, let's get into this a little bit uh, as if we haven't already been talking uh, for 30 minutes already, 40 minutes already. Um, okay, enough of it, guys. I know I had to take care of my dog. I know. I know. No, we, we talked about hey, it. Look, no, I'm, I'm kidding. We all have animals and children in that order that we have to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, here at Colshack's Loop, though, we like to hit the we like to just hit do the hard hitting questions, you know. So if there's a uh, one thing that we know here at Colshack's Loop and if there's anything, you know, from going to Rich's Twitter, um, he's got a cat. So uh, tell us, tell us about your cat, Rick. <laughs> well, right now I've got two cats. Um, oh. a, a, let's see. So net, we're in June. Okay. So a year ago, right when um, the quarantine started and the whole thing, 
we had um, we had a cat, a previous cat uh, named Holly, and Holly passed away like right before the pandemic. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, and she wasn't even that old. But then, as, so as the summer was going on, my 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 wife especially was like, we 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 should get another cat. And we have two dogs. And then we were like, well, we've got two dogs, and the dogs are siblings, a boy and a girl. And and if we get a kitten, you, these dogs are going to make that cat's life a living hell. So let's get two cats. Then they'll be able to team up. And then if the cats run in opposite directions, then the dogs are mixed up and their gyroscopes are thrown off and everything will be ultimately equal out in the, in the, you know, the disgrace land I call my home. So, so we, we adopted these two little kittens, one orange one that we named monkey and a, and an all black one we named Stormageddon glorious diamond of the West. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's awesome. Oh man. You, you sound like me. I had a I had a rabbit named Fillmore Floppers the third, but he was actually the first. Right. Was the <laughs> but the third sounded better. Yeah, like, third sounded better. Know. You know, yeah. So, so we got these two little kittens who are not siblings, but were raised almost as siblings. Monkey is a boy, and Stormy, which is her shortened name, is a girl, and um and and we have now introduced them into our household, and now there are more animals than there are people. And they have taken over. <laughs> we we have made a serious mistake. This the I've never I've never had that logic of like if I thought of getting usually if we get a cat it's like my wife wants another cat. Um, but uh, but the fact that hey we're gonna plan this out if we got two cats we're gonna have one that's gonna go one like the the planning yeah. out oh. is, is is perfect. Of course we had I would figure it out. I wouldn't figure any, you know, I wouldn't think anything else from, you know, the man who brought us such amazing things like Mothman prophecies, you know, Titans. You, you, uh, you got to think about these things. You got to figure out who your good guy is, who your bad guy is, <laughs> you know, what the, what the, you know, the, the mid story complication is yeah. uh, with the cats and dogs. We got this all figured out, but they, um, they basically get along. Uh, Stormy, the black cat is, is, she sort of keeps to herself, you know, but I have this chair in my office here. I'll show you guys my office real quick. I'll sort of turn things around. This is the inside tour, everybody, of Richard's office. That's the bookcase. He's got a lot of it. I think he just did a little, uh, Willy little Willy Wonka, There's World of Pure Imagination. Houdini poster, and then we come with all me. that's ever come back around. And so, do you do you see the red chair? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that that's the chair that's stormy. Like when I'm working, Stormy likes to come up and hang out and sleep in that chair. And and for the longest time, I'm like, oh, I really want to go sit in my comfortable chair, but I can't because the cat's there. And then one day I'm like, okay, I don't care. I, and I just like wedged right down and she sort of like squished over into the side. And I knew for a fact she was going to take off like a shot. She didn't. She stayed right there. And I just scooched in next to her and then she just started purring. And I'm like, what's this? So I, I was like petting her and she kind of crawled up on me. And I'm like, whoa. So that chair turned into the place where she and I can hang out. Now, if I see her in the house proper and I bend down to pet her, boom, she's gone. I cannot touch her. Weird. But once she's in her chair, which is my chair, I can literally practically sit on top of her and she just starts purring. She's cool with it. So, so we have found our place where we can where we can commune together. 
man, I, I dig it. I dig it. That's a great story. <laughs> um, so we're going to start it, I guess, here. We could start at Cole Shack, but let's go a little further back. Uh, you wouldn't dare start at Cole Shack, would you? There is a good chance you'll never get to talk about Kolshak at all. It's the I just want to let you know, I've seen his notes. I'm like, dude, you have like one seventh in there about Kolshak. This is a show about Kolshak. Okay. You, know, you got to work your way around yeah, to it. He's, you know, oh, trust me. He's gonna. He's gonna. All right, Bradley. I may go have ahead. to come back a couple times before we even mention See, that. You're, you're already invited, brother. My 35 page note there. <laughs> Um, but you know, you of course you said you found Cole Shack at the age of eight. But before that, uh, you know, we, I want to see what, what, where were you in the world of horror and science fiction? Because I remember you. Now, t- now tell me uh, if this if this rings a bell uh, right here uh, that I'm going to cue up. Tell me if this song rings a bell. Some are fat and some are thin. And some don't even wear their skin. Oh, I'm telling you, brother, you it's a frightful sight. You knew it. It absolutely was. I, I, I don't I don't know anything that happened supernaturally before the animated Headless Horseman on the uh, wonderful world of Disney. And I saw that probably before I was even in kindergarten. Because I remember by the time I was in kindergarten, I think I already was into ghosts. And I was already, there was a Saturday morning show called The Funky Phantom. I've never Anything? Heard of Phantom. No. I bet, I bet some people. I know that one. Check out The Funky Phantom. You can oh, Google it. You'll see it immediately. It was not scary. It was more like kind of a Scooby-Doo level kind of silly sort of thing. But it was, but I was like, whoa, it's, you know, it's about a ghost. But this thing, that, that cartoon, the, um, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the Disney version, totally galvanized me. I, I was absolutely freaked out. And when I was in kindergarten for Halloween, then I had to be the headless horseman. And my mom made me this whole cape that could tie up above my head so that, and it had this like collar. So it looked like I didn't have a head. And then I would care. I carried a, a small pumpkin around with me. I was so happy. I mean, I was miserable because I couldn't see and I was hot and it was, you know, and it's Los Angeles. Oh, I mean, I know, you guys, like in other parts of the country, Halloween is like, oh my God, it's freezing cold. It snows on Halloween. You have to wear a sweater over your Batman outfit. It looks terrible. But for us, it's like, oh my God, I'm sweating. You, you, Halloween is when you're sweating inside your mask. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the memory in LA of of, of Halloween. So that's, so anyway, I I walked around with this thing tied up around my face, and I was I was thrilled. That's actually the majority of my memories about Halloween was the face just frying inside those plastic masks. And and honestly, it was um, uh, the first time that I did any makeup. It was dressing up as the Wolfman. And it's because I didn't have to wear a mask. And I realized I could do my own makeup. And it was when that that vampire's blood stuff came out that would have come out around the same time for, you know, because we're around the same age. And then there was also something called Scar. 
um, tissue or whatever it was. And you, you, you put scars and you had the fangs that glue, you know, the um, would glow in the dark and vampire blood. And then I just took one of my mom's wigs and made it crazy. And I was the wolf man, as far as I know. So that's, but, th- but then I didn't have to wear the mask anymore, but I love that you talked about Ichabod Crane. Cause I forgot about that one completely. And then honestly, uh, I always like to think about the origins of things. And I think it was actually Scooby-Doo more than anything. Like I, I tried to say it was what DeWidziak said when Dracula met Abbott and Costello was like my big moment. And it, oh yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's a huge one. Oh, I think, I think yeah, it must've been still Scooby-Doo yeah. too. Yeah, well, Scooby-Doo, I liked, but I always knew there was something fishy about it because it was never real. And that always mm-hmm. bothered me. It always bothered And I, they did it purposely so the kids wouldn't get scared. They would always be like, yeah. oh, okay, so that's not a real thing. It's just yeah. people. Okay. And I got that, but that always pissed me off. I was <laughs> like, well, who gives a shit if it's old Mr. Crothers? I don't care. You know, I want an actual mummy. So this is actually, it's like the whole show is great until the end when it becomes a bummer. Yeah. But oh. um, yeah, but Headless Horseman didn't pull any punches. And at the end of it, it's like, what is it? Come on, dead? <laughs> it's like, Jesus, he didn't make it across the bridge. I guess he's dead. And then and then you gotta realize like I'm six years old and I'm going to the library going, Can I get, you know, the legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving? And now, have you ever tried to read Washington Irving's prose? I mean, you, yeah. you want to you you blow your head off. I mean, it's not a six-year-old can't get it. I'm not sure if a 56-year-old can get it. So so that that was kind of no fun. It didn't really like it. I tried to read it, but it wasn't like the thing for me. But then right around in there, probably the very next year, I saw my very first movie in a theater. And that was Scrooge, the musical. The Albert Finney. The- Oh. Albert Finney, yeah. yeah, and I was terrified and loved it because the music was great, but it was also really scary. And I, I mean, there were so many emotions going on in me. I literally should have been driven from the theater to a psychiatric institute for small children, <laughs> because <laughs> that, that's kind of where I was emotionally. I couldn't quite get over it. I still haven't gotten over that movie, but um, but that was the same exact thing where it's like, oh, but this is based on a book called A Christmas Carol, and I'm like, oh, great, I'll go to the library and get A Christmas Carol. So I got that. This book by Charles Dickens, written in you know 1865 or whatever, and I'm and I'm like, what is? That? I can't. I don't understand any of this. I am seven years old. What the hell? So, so I, I had to really struggle with that stuff. But those were my big, you know. So it was it was you know uh, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, and then Scrooge, and then boy, I mean, soon after that. And by then I was already into ghosts, and I was you know yeah. re- doing I was doing serious research by the third grade. And by fourth grade, Kolshak came along, and then I understood. Well, I'm going to have to be a reporter because clearly that's what they do is they, you know, they kill zombies. So. Oh yeah, um, and you, you know, you talking about we had mentioned Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I've noticed on your Facebook, on the Facebook page you have, you have that as your background, and it was also, uh, which somebody else could have been in, put it in there, but it was in the episode of Titans. I know Beast Boy had that. Yes. Is you got to that- realize. Oh, Totally. No, no. Good catch. Totally great catch. So I have this poster. I bring it from show to show because when I go on different shows, they give you an office. And and so and and of course, the shows I'm on mostly have only lasted one season. So I go from office to office, put up all my stuff, take it all down. Now, in TV writing, there is a there is a a a superstition. And the superstition is don't decorate your office. (laughs) 
because if you decorate your office and you bring all your stuff and you get it all set up, the minute it's you've got it set up, you're canceled. Yeah. So I know people who have been on shows for five years and you walk in their office and it looks like it is unoccupied. Yeah. It's they plug their computer in, they unplug it, they leave. There's not a pencil, there's not mm-hmm. a photograph, there's nothing. I don't do that. I decorate, of course, again, almost every show has been canceled, so maybe there's truth to this, but but I decorate, and one of the things I decorate with is this Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein poster. So I had it and I brought it around and then I brought it to Titans and Jeff Johns walks in and flips. He's like, oh my God. He goes, this, this is my favorite movie. I'm like, yes, right? He's like, this is the greatest movie. I love this movie. I have this poster in my house. So we start geeking out about Abbott and Costello. And the next thing you know, Gar has the poster in his room in the Doom Patrol episode, which I think was episode five of season one. And then it travels with him to San Francisco in Titans Tower uh, in season two. So you can you can see the uh, Abin Costello meet Frankenstein poster. Gar has it, but it's it's sort of a, a tribute to the spirit that 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 uh, Jeff Johns and I share with Gar of youthful enthusiasm for all things, uh, all things weird and wild. Yeah. And much much like Frankenstein, I believe that uh, if we didn't talk Kolshak, we could probably have a mob with pitchforks and uh, uh, you know, flames <laughs> after us. So uh, let, coming, you're about. coming directly from Kentucky right. to Alabama. You yeah, ready for no. another picture? Here we go. Uh-oh. Do it. Now, th- Do th- it. Th- this is this is a this is them discussing. Oh, there it is. Oh, OK. Yeah, they've got the script. Uh, the director is the guy smoking the cigar in the white blazer. Mm-hmm. And there's Darren McGavin dressed as Shack and a couple other people from the production. And this is uh, this is them again between scenes discussing a scene. And uh, and there you go. Wow. So see, we're talking about Shack. Yeah, we're we Robert, are. Robert, we're talking about Shack. Yeah, we're talking I'm, about Shack. I'm, I'm leaning over to the side. Every time you say something, I'm adding notes. So I'm, I'm digging every single second of it. So, uh, yeah, you, you found Cole Shack at eight. Uh, first, so tell us about the first time you remember watching it was the Spanish, uh, it was the Spanish Moss murders, right? Was yeah. The first episode. Yeah. And I don't know if I'd heard about the show or, or I hadn't, but we were, I was over at my, uh, cousin, uh, Jan and Rob's house. Um, I grew up in Monterey park, California, which is, uh, like East LA, just outside of downtown LA. Um, but East side. Um, and now I live in Pasadena. So I live only like 15 minutes straight North of where I grew up. In fact, I'm, I'm a Los Angeles native. I was born at St. Joseph's hospital in Burbank, California, which, which is literally right next to Disney and right down the street from Mm -hmm. universal. In fact, in fact, my office at Titans in Burbank, I could walk to the room where I was born during my lunch hour and get back and still have 35 minutes left to eat lunch. I mean, every, it's all right there. And anyway, um, so, so my cousins lived in San Gabriel again, that's just a couple towns over. And, uh, we went over there for, I don't even know why it was, but I know it was April 25th, 1975. Cause that's when that episode aired. I went back and I checked the TV logs and I know it, that's exactly the day, Friday, April 25th. So we were over there for some reason, we were eating dinner and I was, you know, probably going like, Hey, we're going to watch Chico and the man tonight or something. And they were like, no, no, we got to watch Cole Shack. I'm like, what the hell is that? No, it's really scary. Oh, Richie, you'll love it. It's scary. It's scary. Um, it's about this reporter and he hunts monsters and stuff. And I'm like, okay. So, 
So we go into their folks' bedroom, you know, and and we're, we're like lying on the bed at the foot of the bed, looking at the dresser where the TV is. And and that's where it started. You know, the whistling started at 8 p.m. on Channel 7 in Los Angeles. And and at the end of that hour, I can honestly say I was a different person. My mm. life had changed. I, I I didn't understand how something outside of me could know things about me and could speak to me in such an intimate way. Again, kind of like seeing Scrooge, it was almost it was almost upsetting. It's like, and, and I, I mean, I've got, I've got thoughts about what it is about Shack and what it was about, you know, the show that affected me so much, but it, it really, really did. I mean, I literally, I felt like my blood was, was fizzing for days. And then it was like, Oh, you mean this is every Friday night. Great. So all summer long until the show stopped airing, which was in August. Um, I, I watched all the episodes they aired and by the end I'd, I'd missed a bunch and didn't see those until they started airing on local late night television a few years later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was the first time. And that was, uh, that was it for a uh, little Richie Haddam. Well, Bradley, what did you think? Cause I, this was a huge buildup. So what did you think the first time you saw the TV movie? I know we kind of talked about it. But so what was it that, that did anything in particular that grabbed you so much about that TV movie or even the Ripper? Because I think both Rich, both Bradley and I kind of agree. We even like the Ripper a little bit more than we like the TV movie. Um, just just a personal taste. But what do you think, Bradley? Um, well, it was sort of built up to me. And I thought, you know, it can't be as good. I, let me just temper. it can't be as good as Robert says it is. It can't be as good as Robert. <laughs> you know, this old bumbling, bumbling old man says it is. <laughs> Oh, that's a shot on it. Oh, yeah, both the same age. That's a shot to you both. My my apologies. Um, but no, yeah. So I watch it and I cue it up, you know, lights down low. And uh, you know, even at 27, it was uh it was a fun watch. And it remind and it's sort of funny, like I guess I've loved Twin Peaks, you know, I've watched every episode of Twin Peaks, and you'll pick up little little, oh, you know, the Agent Cooper sort of like Cole Shack, you know, and you pick up things here and there that you're just like it, it sort of clicks in your head. Like, you know, I can see where things, a lot of X-Files, I loved X-Files. Like, man, this, I can see where this is. And you had already implanted that in my brain. So I'm sitting here and the, the Rolodex is just spinning yeah, as true. I'm watching, you know? Uh, so I thought it was a really good movie and it was really fast paced and it was just action packed. Like there wasn't ever, and, and Scorsini, the, the vampire uh, was really terrifying. Like even now, he's a scary vampire doesn't talk just makes those weird noises it was it was it was nuts man um even well that that's um that's really interesting and and good to hear because i it's a point of view that i like i can't have i mean it kolshak the the movies especially the tv show though it it speaks to the eternal eight-year-old inside me and and so there's obviously an adult part that's sort of like well yeah, you can complain about this scene or that scene or the lighting or the, the whether, you know, as you get deeper into the episodes, you know, you'll find stuff to complain about. But but it's but it's hard to to really sort of go, well, well, what would I have thought if I'd seen it for the first time as an adult? I mean, oddly, I didn't see the TV movies until a little bit later. I was kind of like into my early teens before I, mm-hmm. I sort of tracked that down. 
Um, and, and tonally, they're, they're kind of different. The, mm-hmm. I think the, the TV movies, especially the first one, is a little bit more hard edge. And Kolchak yeah. is a little more hard edge. I'm not you know, saying anything new to say that you know, he, he appears to have an active sex life that is never, ever referred to in the TV show. He drinks. He never drinks in the TV show. Yeah, he probably, I don't know if he smokes, but I mean, he's like a, he's like an actual adult male reporter living in Las Vegas in the movie. And in the TV show, he's, he's kind of the, he's kind of the more TV user friendly, almost child friendly version in a way. There's nothing about him that would alienate a kid in the TV show at all. Yeah. So. Yeah. He's, he's very asexual. I mean, or, I mean, for the most part, you know, he really is. I mean, there are episodes where, where, you know, a, a woman will come on to him and he'll go like, Hey, 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 none of that stuff. You know? <laughs> get him, get away from me. You old bat. Yeah. I mean, even, even when an attractive woman comes on to him, he's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You know? And it's like, I mean, for a kid that's like, well, okay. So like, I'm not being given a lot of, like, he doesn't seem unreachable you know he's not doing things that i can't do i mean he's driving obviously and stuff but it's like he's sort of got that kid and the other thing that that is about him and and they knew this and Darren mcgavin certainly knew it was that there is something very childlike about the design of the show where where he's the boy who cried wolf man if you will you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he's he is seeing something and he's telling his parents vincenzo there is something out there i am telling you there is a monster outside and it's just like shut up colshag and go to your room <laughs> i mean it's the, 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 the this child father dynamic is so obvious when you think about it and and yet he's the kid who's like well the grown-ups don't believe me and and so i'm going to have to handle this on my own and that definitely struck a chord with the young Richie Haddam. The, the feeling of the grown-ups can't handle themselves. I'm going to have to be the grown-up here. That was very much a part of my experience as a child. And, and being afraid, you know, being just always afraid. What was kind of nice about the Night Stalker was that he was able to um, focus in, like, like, like his fear was focused on something that he then addressed and he addressed it as a frightened person. That's the other thing. Yeah. Nowadays, when you have a show about a guy hunting vampires, he's a badass, you know, and he's like shooting wooden stakes from a crossbow, you know, and it's like, you know, Fuck you vampire. Kolshak was terrified. He was terrified. <laughs> he would run screaming. He would get really close. He just wanted to take some pictures, and then the thing would come at him, and he'd start running away from it. That well, that, that does not happen in television. No, no. He he was the perfect. Um, I, I think of him as a little bit like Don Knotts in The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, and you know that yeah. that, that sort of you know, Bradley. I don't know if you know that one or not, but that, that came to me the other day. But no, we just covered that in The Ripper. When he's in the Ripper's house, he's fearless going into that house and he's checking everything, but then he has the hide in the closet and he, he gets away with the hands. Yeah. The hands coming through the closet. And for a second, I thought like maybe a pork sandwich was going to come through, you know, or, or somebody's nightgown, 
I mean, it was just hilarious how many things kept coming through there. But then he chokes and he's like, and he (laughs) runs away. How often does a lead actor play fear so nakedly as he does in that episode? As they, and you can so literally, good. you can see the sweat dripping off his face. And guys, uh, and uh, Bradley, you'll see it next week, especially. Oh, next yeah. week is is like, I mean, in a way, sort of the 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 zenith of of like he's in a position that is terrifying. Yep. And and uh, it, you can see him sweat, and the hand is going by his face, and literally, it's like it's the kind of scene you cannot film today. It would never ever you wouldn't make it past right. the script stage. He literally just bursts out of the closet screaming and runs away and the guy chases him. <laughs> and it's not funny. It's terrifying. It's like, yeah. but it's so real. It's like, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, that's exactly how a normal human would respond to being one inch away from a murderer who can't see them. He just can't take it anymore. He screams yeah. and runs. But then, of course, he has he has plan B set up outside and, and plan B works. Thank God. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Br- Bradley was the one that brought all that up, sort of the the interplay of terror and comedy within that scene. And and of course, uh, you know, Mark DeWidziak brings up how Jeff Rice masterfully put together a news comedy, you know, with a detective story, you know, with a horror story and combined right. all those three things together. And And but- I think that's the sensibility of the TV movie. Um, is it's based so heavily on Jeff Rice's original unpublished books and Matheson, you know, um, adapted those very closely to a lot of that sensibility where then Rice got out of that deal on the TV shows. And then I think it sort of changed, you know, with some of those writers and they ended up making it much more comical, as you would say. Well, they, they, it's, it's like there's this weird, like if you separate the threads, for instance, in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, oh, yeah. the, you know, I mean, Costello runs away from the monsters too, but, but it's, but there is humor in that moment. I think the humor in Kolshak and in the television show, especially exists in other moments is in yeah. play with Updike and, and Vincenzo right. and things like that. But, but when the horror moments come, they're played legit. You know, mm-hmm. even in the episodes where it, they don't pull it off that well, either because of a lack of makeup budget or costume budget. And you're sort of like, God, I wish that monster looked a little bit better. But in the moment, there's no campiness. He he's he's playing it straight. He's like, now that we're in act four of this television show, I'm in trouble. I could die, you know, and and for again, for an eight year old, that 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 that. That makes up all. That makes up for a lot of shitty makeup and costumes. Seeing a full-grown adult afraid. Yeah. Yeah, but even at this time, like, Kolchak sort of was the progenitor to what Scooby-Doo was later, I guess. Because I mean, the '69, '70 Scooby-Doo was sort of, you know, oh, there's always somebody behind a mask or something. Kolchak comes out in '72, you know, the first movie, then '74, the series, and then I guess there was a a moment where it clicked and they did like, you know, uh, ghoul school and, uh, the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo, which was sort of different. We're like, we need real monsters now. It seems like everybody wants real monsters. And I don't know if Cole Shack influenced that directly, but it seems like that came after Cole Shack well, sort of did that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think the reason the Cole Shack thing worked at the time that it happened was because, 
and, and again, I'm sure Mark Dewitziak talked about this, but but I think there was a feeling like, like you you could have done, and there were movies about reporters discovering horrifying truths about America, Vietnam War, you know, crime in the streets, you know. I mean, it, it was a time, I think, it's always a time, but it was a time then when people were like, wow, the world really is a terrible place. I mean, you know, Vietnam feels different than World War II. And, 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 and the press is showing us almost every day that things are even worse than we thought. And so if you, if you simply take that and apply a metaphor to it, you've got a reporter doing the exact same thing, Carl Kolschak, saying, there's some really bad stuff out here. And then you've got the powers that be who are saying, don't tell people how bad things are. That's just going to upset the, the, the order of things, the order that we have established. And, and we don't want them. I don't even care if it is true. We don't want people knowing how bad things really are. And Kolshak was determined to do. So, so there was, thematically, people were ready for real monsters. And, and, and the Night Stalker served them up for as long as it could. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, talking about Kolshak and uh, after it was gone, it left that hole, I guess. And one of the things that filled it was the books. Um, are you from, have you read any of the books? I know that Martin Woodsyak had like Grave Secrets, which is like one of the first. Yeah. I guess. That's uh, the only one I've read. I read Mark's. Uh, he signed it for me. Uh, we corresponded yeah. a little bit in the late 90s. Uh, I haven't checked out the other ones. Have you? I, well, I have. I've got a lot of the comic books, uh, but I'm trying to wait on those until after the series and we might review them. Because, uh, and I, I, I've got to have say this on every podcast. My favorite horror movie of all time is Not the Living Dead. <laughs> what What is it again? Who Who? What, George George, George B. Cromero. Who is that? No, no. no okay. George I've George never A. Heard Romero. Of it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I guess I'll Google it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's uh, maybe I'll watch it. I don't know. Something that that's you know is a great statement about you know society and the, the evils that happen when the world goes. Oh, so Bradley, go ahead. Sorry, I've yeah. heard you say this so many there's times. Shack, not at the Living Dead comic book, and I've got to read it. I've got it here, and so uh, that's so yeah. great. I mean, we we live in this in this in this time when when fans can participate. You know, and just go, oh, okay, I'm going to write a culture. I mean, I mean, this weird, there's this weird Night Stalker industry that goes on and it doesn't feed. I mean, I, I, I don't, is the Jeff Wright, I'm sorry, the Jeff Rice estate getting any of this? Or is it literally just, is, is Kolchak in the public domain now? Like, how does this even work? Rich, you just, you just stumbled into the, the biggest segue known to mankind. So here, I, I, have, I have actually um reached out and i've been in conversations with jeff's son james whoa so james james and i have talked a few times we're eventually going to interview him and he we have discussed all of these matters mark cleared up for us what the the rice estate owns what disney owns now and you know what the and basically the you know the book side of everything is what the rice estate owns and some what else did he say? Some some possible gaming, um, video games, game, something Dungeons like that. Dungeons and Dragons, those kind of things. Um, Moonstone has bought some of those rights to be able to put out novels and comics 
and t-shirts and all those types of things. What Brandley and I thought of, actually, we started this thing two years ago. So we started the Coal Shack Loop podcast. We recorded our first episode two years ago. Well, now at this point, more than two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I pulled the plug on it because I hadn't gotten the okay from Jeff's son to use the name Coal Shack. So I was just adamant I wasn't going to do it until I could get that name on there because in my mind, it was going to be the biggest thing ever. <laughs> and we we're going to have stories on national news because we we're so great. And when that happened, I did want somebody else to come along and say, guys, you're not paying for any of this. So where's my check? So anyway, but so honestly, what I thought of then was I knew the story about Jeff Rice. Mark has said it so many times and, and I've read about it and I thought, you know what, for Jeff Rice, I want to make his name more known in the public eye and what he did by creating Coal Shack. I want that to live on. So we are actually working right now with James, Mark's going to get into the picture a little bit and eventually once he finishes his Poe book. And believe it or not, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas um, has been in talks with me to do some things in memory of Jeff Rice and Kolshak. And so we're actually Amazing. trying, yeah, we're, we're trying now to, at the very least, Bradley and I are going to start a little GoFundMe or something like that that's going to be a memorial scholarship for Jeff Rice. And it will oh, be nice. It will be either some kind of, I don't know if it's going to be a fictional type of story that we want to make for a writing contest, um, or we'll make it an actual news story. But we're in talks with the, the School of Journalism at UNLV. And so there have been discussions with them. Nothing is set now. At the very least, I'm just in talks with the, the director there. And he's given me the okay to mention to people that we're actually, you know, in talks about that. So we want that name to live on, you know, amazingly. And so that's, that, so, th so that's, that's the segue that you just stumbled into. That's amazing. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad I stumbled into it. And I think that is wonderful. There's something so, so delicious about like a journalism scholarship called yes. Carl Kolschak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it, whether it's, I mean, I mean, that's, Look, first of all, obviously, we are living in a time when we need actual solid journalism right, you know, right. to to battle propaganda. But um, but even if it's for creative writing, um, it, it, I think it, it it would be great to uh, for the Rice name to to live on. I assume both you guys have the paperback and have read the paperback. I, I have not been able to get the paperback. You know, it's, it's, it's so Bradley is on the dark web. I think he has his own room in the dark web that he is able to find all these things. So I, I have, I have the audio from Moonstone and, and I have um, Mark is still sitting on my copies of grave secrets that he is supposed to send to me. I talked to him today. He's like, Mark, did you send them? And did someone take them off my porch? I mean, when are they going to come? I'm all just all nervous and I want them to, to show up. But um, but no, yeah, I, I also have, though, the collection of short stories that has Mark's story that he did that was a combination of Kolshak and Barnabas Collins. Now, I don't know if you're aware of that one or not, but he wrote a story about Kolshak riding on the train that we see in episode one, season one of Dark Shadows. Which I don't think Bradley's shadows. actually ever seen. 
I don't oh. think Bradley knows anything oh. about season one. It's amazing I, to me that he I doesn't. Am not, I am not a Dark Shadows guy. I know nothing about Dark Shadows. It's, <laughs> so uh, Bradley uh, does actually. So so Robert's trying to pull a fast one during our. Uh, oh okay. <laughs> during our interview with Mark, I continuously tried to wouldn't talk stop Mark into doing a, a Dark Shadows podcast, and uh, I think I've got him. I think I've got him. <laughs> no. Robert would just. I I don't have to produce it, brother. You can jump right on that, man. Wait, I'm not once, doing all those episodes, but no, but well, anyway, once, once he finds out how much money comes from a podcast, it's like a fire hose of cash in directly. Oh, yeah. Your face. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be flush with cash. So it's exactly what it is. I mean, that's he's exactly gonna what it is. Sweet, sweet <laughs> podcast coin. Yeah. I mean, just like that, that, that rider money. I, I'm sure you're getting ready. I think it's going to replace Bitcoin. It's going to be Podcoin. That's what it's going to be called. So it's it's just so lucrative. You might as well, everybody might as well invest right now and start by sending your money to Kolshak's Loop. <laughs> where does that take us, Bradley? You've been you've been doing a good job leading us. Where where are we? I have some questions, and you've still got some questions. Where where are we, man? Uh, I want to put Rich on the spot. So, oh no way. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna put Rich on the spot right here. Rich, Finally, you get a call. <laughs> Uh, w- somehow the the rights end up, we can work it out and we get a call. Hey, Rich, you're writing new coal shacks coming out. You're writing it. Mm. What, what do you do? Well, well, you know, you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys know the story of the, of the new coal shack from 2005. Yeah. And, um, and DeWidziak talked about it. I don't know if he talked to you guys about it. He talked to the guys who did, um, Cole shack tapes, you know, yeah. they, they yep. I think they talked to, um, Spotnitz. Um, and there was, uh, you, you know, it was interesting. It, it sounds like what happened with that show was you had people on the creative side who really wanted to, as fans deliver a, a new updated version, but with as much fun Cole Shack trivia and and persona kind of you know yeah. brought in and 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 tossed around for the for the fans you know the old fans like people who are new to it could enjoy the show for what it was but then mm-hmm. the old fans would be like oh my god there's the hat there's the tape recorder or whatever I don't you know various things that 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 they could do the the, the main difference obviously is in you know, spoiler alert, Bradley, in the 20 episodes of Cole Shack, the Night Stalker television show, no episode refers to any other episode. And Cole Shack never sits back and goes, wait a second. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm, I don't blame Vincenzo. Maybe the problem is with me. What the serious fuck is going on? Never happens. Okay. He's just, which is, there's this weird, like purity to it. He's just like every week. It's just like, well, turns out it's a monster this week too. You know, but they do. Who's going to believe it. <laughs> right. But, but the way they do the episodes is they're not in any sort of order. And it's not like, well, last week it was this and this week. So th- there's no suggestion that these episodes take place uh, oh, oh, seven days apart in Kolshak's life, you you get the feeling that they take, a, even though he's the same age, it's like, no, 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 these are far, far apart. These are months and months apart. And he's or, he's forgotten about the last one by the time this other one comes along. 
and and it's just like well so, sometimes it's weird you know all right this episode over with on to the next you, and and i audiences don't accept that now now there was a reason that television was like that the and there's a reason that daytime tv was different than nighttime tv because daytime television was for people who were home every day which were typically at that point the assumption was it was housewives so there were soap operas and soap operas followed in chronological order day to day to day and they became very popular obviously now Evening programming was different. It had different challenges because people did things. People had PTA meetings. People went out to dinner. People had ball games. People had theater tickets, and they went to concerts. And they had they, they just they had rich lives that did not involve the television. So no television show that ran in the evening um, followed a strict chronology that acknowledged the previous episode, unless it happened to be a soap opera. And there, and there were relatively few of those. You know, when I was growing up, there were things like Dynasty and Falcon's Crest and Dallas and things like that. But really, that was just them. Even medical shows and cop shows, they never acknowledged what was going on at any other point. I was a big fan of The Rockford Files. I think The Rockford Files holds up even today. I think it's the yeah. best detective show that's ever been on television. You can't beat James Garner and Stephen Cannell. That is a match made in heaven. Those episodes are solid gold. And, and even that show, week to week, you would do an episode like, the, you know, season three, there'd be an episode where suddenly there's this woman hiring him and it's the woman he used to be engaged to. Yeah. <laughs> what? You were engaged? Right. Never heard of her? Didn't know? Yeah, I was thinking we were engaged, you know, and the whole thing. And then, and then the episode ends and she leaves. And next week, never mentions her. Never see her, never talks about her, never happens again. Did nothing, nothing. So, and, but that was how TV worked because they, 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 they figured it out and they figured out based on Nielsen ratings and viewer uh, habits that a person, this is in the seventies and eighties, maybe even into the nineties, a person, their favorite show on average, a person would watch every third episode, their favorite show that is not what we're dealing with now. We are dealing with people who look at TV the way they look at every, you know, books and movies and everything else. They look at it as, as this extension of their own lives. It happened incrementally for one hour dramas. It started with Hill Street Blues. That was the first cop show that not only followed the cops back home, but had storylines that went week to week to week to week and went throughout an entire season. Writers wanted to do it. Stephen Cannell wanted to do it. He pitched it every year. Networks were like, we're never going to do it because people don't watch TV that way. So they're going to miss an episode. They're not going to know what the fuck you're talking about. They're going to be two episodes behind and you're talking about stuff that happened last week and they didn't see last week. They don't see reruns until next summer. So we can't do those shows. Cannell didn't get to do that show until Wise Guy and that was deep into the 90s. So it took a long time. And, and basically it, 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 it had to get to a point where people could program TV on their own by buying VHS or DVDs or watching on cable channels where shows could just be broadcast 
every single day. I mean, they were just, it just, there were simply more venues to watch the shows you loved. And then it became safe. It's like, well, now people can tape record shows. So if they missed last week, maybe they see it. They don't see it on Tuesday. Hmm. They see it on Wednesday and then they catch the next episode. Hmm. That's what allowed for this. This is a long, long way of saying you can't do Coal Shack the way you used to do Coal Shack. And that's problematic because the minute you let Coal Shack in on the joke, it becomes very much like shows we've seen that have come after Coal Shack, like The X-Files and every other show. And part of the joy of Coal Shack is that he doesn't brood. He doesn't sit around going, why are the vampires following me? He doesn't. He's got this sort of, you know, reset button that makes him a very compelling, energetic character to watch. And you don't want a guy who feels cursed. You don't want a guy who is walking around under the shadow of something that killed his wife, mother, daughter, girlfriend, whatever. You, you kind of, and the other thing, okay, so that's the story thing. There's another thing missing. The name is Darren McGavin. Tell me who the modern Darren McGavin is and I'll make Cole Shack. That's we, we we did talk and I'm, I'll backtrack. Thank you for all of that. What you just said, that's a whole nother perspective into this. And I've thought about it many, many times and we've heard Mark talk some about it too. And, and we did go through, um, people wrote to us and said, you know, we want this actor to be Cole Shack and this actor to be Cole Shack. And Mark has his thoughts about it. And he had one that he thought it's not possible now because of age, but he actually thought a really good one that would go against type, but would work would be Jeffrey Goldblum of all people. Oh, he said he has the (laughs) the proven genre with the fly. He was in independence day. He was snarky, but smart. He could still play scared, but, you know, and committed. He had all those, those qualities. And that we're, we're kind of like, I like wow. it. Mark, Mark really thought of it. But then he said he doesn't care so much about who plays him as long as the person who plays him gets Cole Shack right. So they need to have all the elements of just what you said. And the, the word for me seems to be huspa. You know, it's just got to be that energy that that character has. And uh, he said he doesn't matter so much about that, but he wants the right director. And I think he said it was Del Toro. Right, Bradley? Yeah, he said he wanted Del Toro. He he thought Del Toro would do a really good job. Well, it's weird. I don't know. I mean, there there was something, you know, Del Toro is not known for realism. And I think the realism Mm -hmm. actually helped Kolshak. I think I think you need look, I love Edgar Wright. I mean, I, 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 I will watch Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and World's End every night of the week. I mean, he, he might be trilogy. my, yeah, he's one of my favorite, you know, modern directors. But, but there was, there was a, for a while there, it sounded like he was going to do a Kolshak movie. And I'm like, I right. love him. I love Kolshak. I don't see the two mixing because you don't need stylization. You need anti-stylization. You need that 70s realism. To, to let the scary stuff pop. Um, and I mean, it's funny when I wrote uh, Mothman Prophecies, in my mind, the movie was going to look like all the president's men, you know, mm. it was going to be just like totally stripped down so, the, so that the scary stuff would feel very foreign and weird and like it's happening in a very, very real world. Now, of course, Mark Pellington took that script and created an atmospheric masterpiece that not only conveyed the feelings and the story that I wanted to tell, 
but also delivered it in this just heartbreakingly beautiful, uh, you know, uh, uh, tableaus. I, he, I mean, really, it's a beautiful movie, and I, and so I have no complaints. It, but it's it's that it is the it is the question. It's like if if we want to believe Kolchak is a real guy in our real world, then that's how that's the context we've got to see him in, and that's the visual context you should present him in, and then let the monsters invade that world uh, okay so i think i can sum up everything that was just said here uh, what, what is he showing this is the mothman script oh <laughs> you just carry that around nice so I thought i recognized that font <laughs> <laughs> well it's the shooting script and it has uh each scene numbered and it's been really fun to follow along with this it's not it's not a hundred percent exactly like what the movie is but that that's been really fun to follow along and, and watch. I do that with a lot oh, of cool. stuff. Yeah. Good, good. Go ahead, Bradley. Sorry cool. to interrupt. So to so to sum everything up here, basically you want a Quentin Tarantino call shack. <laughs> Book it, Hollywood. <laughs> Make it yeah. now. Yes, that's that 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 is what I was saying. That that's what I was getting at. I want I want oh. the big Lebowski to play Kolchak. Oh that's um, what I want. I want the dude to play Kolchak. And he has the team up. He has the team up with John Turturro. Oh, well, Turturro. I don't know. Well, somebody, I mean, uh, somebody suggested Brian Cranston. Mark, a lot, Mark a lot of people Cranston. talk about him. Yeah, so, and I'm sort of like, I get that. I get that. No, okay. I think it's. I think he looks like him, and he has the comedy, but then Mark's like he's just too old. Like Mark, Mark wants him to be in his 40s, right, Bradley? Yeah. Well, and Mark also said that he thought he he was real big on. You know, I want him to have the feel of Kolchak, but I don't want him to play it like Darren McGavin. I want him to be different than McGavin, which. Right. Yeah. I understand that because that's because Dwidziak is looking at Kolchak like Hamlet. Yeah. And he's like, exactly. you know, exactly. It's exactly what he said. Exactly oh, what he really? said. Oh yes. hundred okay, percent. Yeah. Yes. In other words. <laughs> In other words it should be, you know, actors should interpret the character. I mean, yep. which is a way of honoring, you know, canon. That's really beautiful. That's hilarious. Oh my God. You know, I should send him an email. <laughs> I feel like I've been talking to him, you know, uh, you know, cross paths through podcasts for the last few years. Man, I better catch up with him. Why don't we just go ahead and have like a, we can get more account. Mark. We could literally. Oh, Mark would jump. Mark would jump Mark on. Right we could, we, yeah, we could call Mark right now. Because I guarantee you, I'm going to check. I'm sure he's on. He's he's still writing Poe because he. I think he does the spooky stuff late at night. Well, let's find well, out. He does, verify uh, it right now. Oh no, he's been off for 17 minutes. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, smarter man than us. That, he's, he's just uh, he's just probably taking a lunch break. He'll he'll stay did, up to about three. Did you guys get his uh, Twilight Zone book? Yes, I've got. Yeah, the, uh, we've we actually uh, interviewed somewhere. him. For for oh, a Twilight Zone podcast that we do also, but Bradley has the book. Yeah. I've oh, nice. That. Yeah, it's it's good. It's it's a it's a really good companion piece to anyone who's a fan of Twilight Zone, written by another fan, who will just it's like having a conversation with a friend about the episodes that you love. Uh, so that that I I, I got that book back around my birthday, Christmas time, and and was surprised how engaging I was just every night I would read one more chapter and it oh, was yeah. wonderful. And he has these guest little uh the guest spots in it too that you're just like, wow, you know, like 
that I thought were really good. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Just checking in with people and going, you know, what are your favorite episodes? Yeah. And yeah. And that was one of my, uh, so my Cole Shack pick was, and this was before the show came out, the Loki show, but I, I think Tom Hiddleston would make a good, uh, good Cole Shack. I could see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he, you're you are probably correct. I the the that character is so present in my mind. It's hard for me to kind of like strip everything away and yeah. just know who he because I don't really know that actor very well outside of what he plays. Yeah. So yeah, I um, don't know. But you know, when I probably should have did the transition while ago instead of bringing up Tom Hiddleston. But talking about the Twilight Zone, um, you've referenced the Twilight Zone in a couple of your works, possibly. Um, in in Titans, the Twilight Zone pinball machine was that you? Oh no, that was Jeff Johns. For is he sure, big, that was Jeff Johns. Is he a big Twilight Zone guy? <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, he's not. He, he's not quite. He's not as old as uh, Robert and I, but he's older than you, Bradley. Yeah. And and he, but he's you know. I mean, he loves that stuff. And okay, here's another one though in Supernatural. So the the plane episode, uh, uh, Phantom Trap. Oh yeah, oh um, yeah. They're in the bathroom, and this guy throws out a random stat, and he's like, "Oh, only twenty thousand and one people, you know, planes go down." Was that a reference to twenty thousand nightmare at twenty thousand feet, or did you just throw out a word, a number? Oh no, I think that was probably just a figure that got thrown out. But I mean, if there was. If there was an opportunity to reference that episode, uh, I I would have definitely done it. Probably did in some draft, and it just uh, it just never uh, n- never made it to the screen. But but yeah, that was that was a really fun episode. Oh yeah, that was, was. I've got some supernatural stuff a little bit later, and uh, but you know talking about the Twilight, Robert, what's that? I'm sorry, was that was that was that audible? <laughs> That, der- that derisive oh. snorting laugh. Completely derisive. You must be a writer. <laughs> Good choice of words. Hey, Robert, are you on page 37 of our document here? Uh, that's where Supernatural is. <laughs> 37. I'm sorry, is that where? 37 is that, of. Is of that before or after I slit yeah. my wrist? When, when is that? Oh, whoa. You can't say that nowadays. Come on. But, uh, I'm, well, yeah. I'm just kidding. Good Lord. Um, anyway, apparently I'm sorry to interrupted. What were we going to say? We're off the rails. I mean, this is under siege two right now. We're off the rails, train into train. <laughs> this is out of control. Seagal's done up the ladder. Um, who's the guy? Can we go back to under siege one though, and have Erica Ellenet come out of the, the birthday cake again? That's all I want to see. Can we have well, you that? Know, that's where she got you her. Try to put that in the breeze. <laughs> and we all know. We've all followed her career since then. <laughs> she at least went to Baywatch after that, right? Or was it before that? Oh, did she? Oh, maybe I she think did. she did. I think I'm pretty sure she's on Bay. I, I hate to admit, I really didn't watch Baywatch. It was it was a little too much for me, even when I was in my 20s. I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna watch this. Right. But all right, all right, this is complete. This is super tangent. Do you think that Baywatch, Rich Adam? Do you think that Baywatch? was inspired by the the lifeguard movie that had sam uh, oh waterson in it is it waterson the the uh, do, you, do you remember the lifeguard movie it was this older lifeguard parker um the guy from the hardy boys parker stevenson parker stevenson played the young lifeguard and then and, and why can't i give his name he was in 
uh, Roadhouse, the guy with the mustache. He was in Big Lebowski. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Sam Elliott. Elliott, yeah, Sam Elliott. Yeah. So Sam Elliott played an aging lifeguard who was there, and and his girlfriend wanted to get him a job selling cars. And uh, so I, I honestly think when I saw Baywatch, I was like, man, they're just doing the lifeguard with Elliot. This just got to be the takeoff of that, which honestly was a pretty decent movie coming for a guy who was a lifeguard for eight years. So anyway, Sam Elliott, he plays a lifeguard who's seen too much, too many sunburns, <laughs> too much copper just tone, too, you know, too, too much derisive comments like that is what it basically he was. He can't, you know, he's seen things he can't talk about. He's trying to get out of the life. <laughs> this is his last summer. He's oh the horror, the stingrays. But, and they and they, <laughs> and they and they and they want him to train his replacement. They don't want him to do that because he's going to tell this kid the real shit. He tells this kid what lifeguarding's all about. The circuit's going to blow. I think I think that's the script that didn't make it in. But but yes, I like your version of it much better. He's almost out. <laughs> they pulled him back in. This, okay, now we're under siege two. The, the, the we're under siege two. We got Godfather three. I think we're, we're starts, pulling it all. You know, a someone pretty... starts hunting the swimmers down at the pool. <laughs> Sam Elliott's got to hang in. I'm sorry, for the one beach. last summer before it's at he the retires. beach. Oh, it's at if the beach though. Okay, then at the beach, but one more summer if it doesn't kill him. <laughs> No, the pools, that's like Joe. He doesn't like, by the way, by the way, he doesn't like this punk kid. He doesn't like this punk kid. He doesn't think he's cut out for the business. He doesn't, he doesn't have what Sam Elliott calls the stuff. Hey, Robert, do you know who wrote and By the end. But I can't, I can't guys, talk, man. Day, I'm hurting. <laughs> hey, Robert, do you know who wrote Under Siege 2, by the way? Yeah. Yeah, I sure do. That guy up there. I watched, dude, they've got like a six minute compilation of every death in that movie. <laughs> it takes six minutes to get through all those deaths. God yeah. damn. Oh, they're all quick. right. Well, no, but under wow. it had the guy from Twin Peaks in it, you know, wait, I didn't know. I, listen, the, the thing about Under Siege 2 is there, there was, I mean, look, there, there were many hours when Matt and I were the, the, my close, close friend, who he and I wrote the script Dark Territory that became Under Siege 2. And there were many moments where we were like, this is bad. I mean, this is Steven Seagal. This is not what we wanted. We were, you know, we wanted Harrison Ford, maybe Bruce Willis, not Schwarzenegger, certainly not this guy. I mean, this is not, this is not going to be, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is not going to be Die Hard, which of course is what we wanted it to be because that's what we copied when we wrote it. Die Hard on a train, ain't that what you said? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and we did it out of total love and respect. It was not yeah. a, a cynical move. It was like, how do we do something equally cool using a train as our environment? And we tried to get all the best train gags we could and, you know, original action beats, but still the feeling of a guy who's just hanging on by his fingernails throughout the entire movie. Anyway, but um, then Seagal does it. Okay, movie was not a big hit, by the way. It did not do as well even as Under Siege, but it has lived on in the pantheon of Steven Seagal movies. And I will say this, that I do appreciate the fact that guys our age, I mean, I'm talking my age all the way down to your age. They've all see, somehow seen that movie and they, and they see it with their dads 
and they're they're uh, and people have have a lot of fond memories and and I had the odd experience of of seeing it in a theater just a couple of years ago. It was one of the anniversaries. It was maybe 2015, I think. Um, and and there was a, a theater filled with uh, you know people Bradley's age, people in their 20s and 30s, who whose point of view of this sort of movie was like this is an old movie and this is sort of a this is like a weird breed of movie. Like it's not a real movie. It's like it it's 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 like it's got the it's not film noir. It's not any of that. But but it's like this is like you know, 80s slash 90s action, which is its own weird, elevated, unreal genre. And they loved it. Like they, they, they appreciated it for what it was. They, they loved the sort of pre-visual effects era it lived in, mm-hmm. the stunts, but also just sort of the, the, the weird license it took with reality. I mean, Steven Seagal literally like gets shot with a, a elephant gun yeah. The, the bullet is is like about the size of, of a tube of chapstick, you know, it goes through his body and he's like, you think I'm shot? That's that's not shot. You know, and we're like, what the fuck is this? That was, wasn't in your original TV. script? No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> and, and no, and I don't mean to, I don't, I hope it didn't sound like I'm being incredulous or anything. Like I really enjoy under stage too. Like it's a fun, the miniatures in it, in it. And the, yeah, I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun watch. The, the, of course you got the very bad, like Steven Seagal in front of a green screen, you know? Uh, oh yeah. But oh, I mean, yeah. I, it's a fun, it's a fun watch. I mean, well, the performances, I mean, look, Eric Bogosian's great. Um, the guy whose name I forget who plays, uh, Eric Bogosian's top henchman with the short gray hair. He's amazing. Yeah, Twin Peaks. Uh, uh, Morris Chestnut is great. Uh, Catherine Heigl is in it. You know, I mean, really? that's fun. She's the she's the niece. She plays uh, Seagal's niece. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So it's fun, to, it, and it is fun to watch. And it, and it it for me, it took many many years, but now I'm definitely at a point where I can watch that movie and enjoy it. So. Um, so yeah, there you go. I'm you know, and too. and talking about that, there's like so being a writer, some I mean, pretty much you give your soul, you give your heart and soul to a director, on on these white pages, and you say, make this reality, sir. I mean, is when when in situations like that, is the impetus on you to be like, I can write the story and I can make this, or do you think it's more on the director to take your your script and make it like, I guess from your perspective, is it, what's the mix on something like that? I, I don't know. Well, you know, ideally, you know, I started in feature films, then I, I went into television. I, I would say in any case, the ideal situation for a writer is to actually have a working relationship with the director and at least be able to communicate your feelings and thoughts and ideas. And, 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 and if a director, you know, asks questions and, and you can answer them and that informs what they do, that's that's great and that happens in television much more than in feature films where typically a writer's job is done at a certain point and then production begins and the movie is made and and now it's in the hands of others um i was really lucky with mothman uh mark pellington really liked the original script and that's the movie he wanted to make and so the movie that's made what's on screen is overwhelmingly i mean it's it's om- it's almost my first draft i mean it's like yeah that's that's what i wrote 
um, he had two writers that uh, were people he worked with, uh, Ernest and Lewis, um, uh, Ernest Marrero and Lewis Clark, I think their names were, but they, um, they were, uh, were creative compatriots of his and they worked on the film with him and, and changes that were made during production were made by them, but were informed very much by what Mark Pellington was interested in about the script. And what he was interested in, thank God, was the same stuff I was interested in. So, so the spirit of the movie and the spirit, uh, the spirit of the movie is a reflection of the spirit of the script, I would say. Um, and that was great. And then by then I segued into television and my very first experience in television was miraculous. First of all, the show was called Miracles, which by the way, I think is the reason no one watches it because it sounds religious. So anyone within the sound of my voice, it's okay to watch Miracles. It's not religious. It's not Christian. <laughs> it's not telling you to go to church. It's about scary. Shit. But, um, but I wrote this pilot. It was the first TV pilot, first TV episode I ever wrote with the hopes of it getting produced. And it was produced and it was directed by Matt Reeves, the guy who I co-wrote yeah. Dark Territory with. Brand I mean, a lot of, yeah, a lot of coincidences sort of like suddenly, you know, played out at the same exact moment. And he ended up directing it. And to have an enormously talented friend direct something of yours that, and this is a person you went to college with, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And he did such a beautiful job, but I will tell you that much of what Matt did in that is not at all what I pictured. So when I wrote the pilot for Miracles, I was again, picturing something like a bit more naturalistic and Matt brought this poetry to it that has made it my favorite thing that has ever been produced of anything I've, I've done. And that's when I learned after Mark Pellington and Matt Reeves, I was like, you know what? Rather than being a writer who, who laments that, you know, their script was ruined by the director, you know, the director's bringing a gift. The actor is bringing a gift. The production designer, the costume designer, the, the makeup, hair, editor, composer, everyone is bringing a gift to what you have written. And you, you hope that all of these gifts come together and, and, and sort of form a dramatic uh, uh, whole. But things that I never would have thought of that are now my favorite things in the show. Skeet Ulrich, as the lead actor, did things that I, I, I was so lucky to have him as the lead of this show. Seriously, to the point where by the third or fourth episode, we were just like, we can write anything for this guy and he will nail it. And he did. Now, he was a guy who did exactly what I pictured. I'm like, as I'm writing, I'm hearing the way he's going to do it. And he did it exactly that way and did it brilliantly. So writers that, and I would rather have someone else come along and add their own ingredient to the stew and make it taste better and different. Yeah, and you know, you talked about, uh, man, things just came together, but your life seems to be like full of synchronicities. I mean, you were born on the day that Woody Derenberger, oh, well, that's a mouthful, Woody Derenberger saw the injured cold, didn't, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, yes. You know. Yeah, I was, I was pretty much born on the day the Mothman prophecies phenomenon began. There was one. There was one thing that happened like a week earlier, but I think November second, when injured right. cold showed up. That that's what it really was. And I didn't. I didn't know that until I was, you know, thirty and writing the script. I had no idea that 
that the synchronicities were that close. My second son was born on March 25th, which is John Keel's birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, just a, a lot of weird coincidences and things throughout my life that that do make me feel like I'm I'm either someone's pulling the strings or I'm just a very lucky guy. Yeah, but even like I mean, you've talked about it before. Like heavens, what else going on around that time that you're writing this in a cafe? Uh, you know, just sort of jotting this down, like the Heaven's Gate stuff. Uh, uh, what yeah. else was going on at that time? That oh, the uh, the Phoenix Lights. Phoenix were, Lights. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's a so, lot of stuff. I mean, look, but you you know, here's the thing: you take any six month period in history, and there's a million yeah. weird supernatural things going on. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was the. the it's it's funny how just in the last twenty years, it feels like. you know genre stuff has now permeated i mean there used to be one show or two shows and then pretty soon it was x files and then buffy and then and now pretty soon it's just like if you're into genre you do not have to look for it it is right there and and it's not like people have changed it's just that now you can indulge your interest you know and and no one we're in a different kind of culture now too where where uh, uh, adults can uh, can entertain childhood, uh, you know, um, interests, and no one questions it. You know, you can just if you loved it when you were ten, you can still love it now, and no one thinks that's weird. We're not really required to grow up. Yeah, which I I can attest <laughs> to having uh, '80s real Ghostbusters figures and and all this stuff behind me. What a fun interview we had with Rich, and that is part one of that interview. Uh, next Wednesday, you can expect to hear the second part. Uh, we discuss a little bit of his show, Miracles, talk about some of the aspects of that. Though We talk about cryptids, the paranormal. We dig into his movie, The Mothman Prophecies, that he wrote the screenplay for. Uh, we talk about screenplays a little bit. And, of course, right at the beginning, we're going to we're gonna still talk a chunk about Cole Shack right there. Uh, I know that's, that's what everybody's here for. Um, but great interview. Thank you for that, Rich. And, of course... Um, this Sunday, we're going to drop the episode. We were late with the last episode. I'm sorry about that. Um, but Sunday, we're going to drop our episode for the review for They Have Been, They Are, They Will Be. Um, I don't know what the, I haven't seen this episode yet. Um, I think it's the alien episode from reading the titles, and I know there's an alien episode, so I'm going to assume that's what it is. Um, but thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, if you can, uh, you can find find Rich. He's on Twitter, at uh, Richard Haddam. Uh, and he's got other, you know, he's working on projects. I know we talked, we mentioned this one, mentioned it again. And Titan season one is actually airing on TNT. And um, this Titan season three is airing later this fall. If you want to catch up, you can go to HBO Max. They've got all the seasons there. Um, you can, you know, you can find Mothman Prophecies anywhere. It's great. I would definitely recommend that. <laughs> we even talked a little bit about it. Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. Uh, this episode, you can go find that. I'm sure you can stream it on Amazon Prime. It is a really a fun, enjoyable watch. Uh, man, there's a lot in that movie. And uh, as Rich said, there's some changes he didn't particularly like. But it's an enjoyable watch. Uh, the miniature scenes, they spent a lot of money on that, you can tell. Uh, there's some really good miniature scenes that they did. But for all things Colshack, you can find us at Colshack's Loop on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Twitch. We have a YouTube. Don't have any videos up there yet. We hope to be posting these interviews. Uh, it's a little bit more time intensive to edit the the videos and, and audio 
and Robert's working on one podcast, and I work on another that we do. We do a couple other podcasts. We're doing a podcast from the show Evil, which we also talk about in the second half of this interview with Rich. Uh, you, I mean, if you found the podcast, you obviously know where we are. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Overcast, uh, many places you get podcasts. And if you want to leave feedback, we are always looking for feedback for any episode. We hope to have a we, – we missed an episode. We, we When we put it together – we could do a 30-minute episode with the feedback for The Ripper. We're thinking about it doing it sort of like in three-episode bundles. Have The Ripper, The Zombie, and they have been, they are, they will be. Do, do all those three together and just sort of have them in a group and talk about them. Um, and we also still need to release the, the... We had some technical snafus with our movie episode, The Night Stalker Movie. Uh, we, we are going to... Yeah, we're going to have to re-record that, it looks like. But... We hope to get that out and and our, our our feed on the on on the podcast app. You know, anywhere you look, it is sort of jumbled right now. We have interviews sort of coming in and out, and I know that the Night Stalker is definitely gonna the movie's gonna have to be stuck somewhere, um, but I'm not sure where we're going to put it. We'll figure that out though. We'll figure that out all down the line. Uh, but you can reach us. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can f- email us at colshacksloop at gmail.com. And our phone number is 662-374-0778. And at that phone number, um, I think it's like two or three minute intervals. But if you need more time, just call back. Just say it's a continuation and just call back until you finish your feedback. And we can paste those together like it never even happened. And it's one continuous call. Um, you know, the magic of technology here at work. We're, we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash loop. We don't have any bonus content we hope to uh get that up soon and also we're still working with james rice and um some other parties involved on a jeff rice memorial scholarship so just keep keep an eye out on that um and i've taken up enough of your time in this outro uh just rich was so gracious we want to thank him for that and for all things cold shack you can find us right here inside the loop.